Hello. Hello. How are you? How are you doing? I feel like I'm going into hibernation, sort of, oh. where like I don't have any thoughts or feelings, and I'm just like inert. Ah, uh, we have a word for that. What's it called? Depressed. <laughs> I want to talk about this on a future episode because I, yeah. I don't know how to even define depression anymore. Yeah, I mean, me neither. Anyway, um, we've gotten many, many wonderful listener questions, and we're going to do our best to answer a couple more specifically, you're going to do your best. <laughs> I might throw them back at you if I don't know the answer. The, these questions have been so nice and heartening to, to read, and they have lifted my spirits every single time we get one. And I will remind everyone, Jim is a medical doctor. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not medical advice, though. <laughs> I'm a generalist. <laughs> I, you know, I, I know a lot of stuff. But I'm an expert in nothing, so I'll tell you what the experts say. Great. I'm like an aggregator. Okay. I'm like mm -hmm. the Coachella uh, of doctors. I don't understand this fixation with Coachella, but you're like the, you're like the the Huffington Post um, <laughs> doctors. Mm -mm. I, I'll have to think on that one. <laughs> anyway, okay. So this is from uh, Michelle. She asks. Would a pulse oximeter be a good tool to use to determine how sick someone with COVID symptoms is? Um, hmm. So remind me what a pulse oximeter is. It's that thing that they clip on your finger when you're very sick um, and you go to a doctor's office or, or definitely an emergency room and it shoots a beam of light like a red little beam through your fingertip and it's measuring how well you're oxygenating your blood. And people have proposed this as a way of screening you remember we talked about this crash, like some people just right. fall off of, of it and we want earlier markers so that people aren't coming into the emergency room when they're extremely ill and really, and the doctors are behind the ball. So people have proposed that maybe a pulse ox would be a way to do that. I think some people are more excited about it than others. There's reason to think that um, in some cases it might show up like, oh, hey, my oxygen's dropping, but I feel fine. So it's a good thing I was checking my pulse ox. <laughs> but more often you would be like feeling miserable before that, before that mm -hmm. occurred. So when you come in, like Bootsy had her, her oxygen level was 79. Mm -hmm. And that's a level where you could start to see organ damage. Like you're, you, you need more oxygen than that. Yeah. getting to your vital organs. So the idea is that if you started to see it drop a little bit, you know, I'm normally almost all of us are 99 or 100. And mm -hmm. if you start to see it drop down to 97 or 96, you that might be a sign that something's bad. But if you had a, you know, respiratory infection and a little, you know, tiny bit of fluid in your lungs like it was starting to move into the lower respiratory tract you could be perfectly healthy not require hospitalization and see a little dip like that so it's unclear exactly what people would do with that if it would really help <gasps> oh it's the uh it's the hold on it's the uh it's the fighter jets hold on it's the fighter jets. You're really psyched. 
Oh, damn it, I missed them. Did you want to go out and do the oh, I heard them. They were so national loud. I anthem? Missed them. Ah! <laughs> totally missed them. Heard tell me, tell me I, I, I saw something about this happening today. What's the deal? There are with- fighter jets flying over New York. Um, Why? Right now. And I miss them. <laughs> are they dropping dollars? I, it's a morale boost. Uh, My question well, stands. Probably money from the government would be more effective than yeah. <laughs> boosting morale. But I missed it. Hmm. Well, I'm surprised that you are so disappointed. I, what, that time when, do you, I guess you weren't in New York then, when they flew the space shuttle, which was attached on top of a plane and they flew it around Manhattan. And it just, I like couldn't work the whole day because it was so thrilling. Really? And everyone else was like, what's your problem? What thrills you about this? Um, well, space is one thing. Like space is cool, you know? Yeah. But also just things flying in the air is really, really cool. And when they do it in a novel way, it's, it kind of makes me want to cry. Oh, it's man. like, you know, flight. Anyway. Sorry, this is, I, I'm, I know I'm totally disrupting our taping, but. Uh, <sighs> sorry, <laughs> I really do love things in the sky. <laughs> um, okay. All right, I'm sorry. This is fascinating to me. I did not know this. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, it's just inspired. I don't know. There's something moving about like large displays of collective human action. Anyway, okay. Um, you were asking why we need oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you need it in order to keep your cells alive and functioning. I got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, right. What, what, so a pulse oximeter manages, measures the oxygen in your blood. Yeah. This is the thing I was trying to find uh, w- with my story about the immune system and trying to monitor people for the crash so we could give people an indicator to say, okay, before you actually collapse on your table or feel like you're going to die, you should watch this number. And if it starts to drop, you know, come into the hospital because we're going to get you on oxygen right now or maybe start you on steroids, maybe start you on an immune modulating drug because we see the crash coming. And mm-hmm. get, it would give people a little heads up. It would make the process a little less terrifying. Um, and this is one of the hopes. But I think most cases for most people, you're not going to know what to do exactly with that number. And by the time it starts to fall significantly, um, you'll mm-hmm. already feel bad enough that you would have sought care. So I, I think that's what some people are seeing. But there's still hope. I have hope. Got it. You so know, for the average person, it's not really like a, a legible tool. Probably not. It, it could be really helpful for people who, who do this monitoring a lot. We'll have a good sense of like, whoa, this um, that's significant for me. And maybe down the line, we'll have some clear guideline that's like, hey, if you're normally 99 or 100 and you're a generally healthy person, you see yourself drop to 97, get to a hospital. But we don't have that yet right now. Got it. Yeah. Um, Okay. Next question. This is from Joshua. Says there are pictures of biohazard clad workers spraying down public spaces with disinfectant. I've seen these. Um... I don't know if I've seen any pictures of this in the U.S., but I've certainly seen them. this happening internationally. Yeah. Are those 
The question is, are those effective, and why aren't we doing that here? I know. Um, it's been really... I, I kept seeing that back in January and wondering what is with all the spraying down of places, like spraying down bushes and, and the sides of buildings, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, some of it was the speculation is that some of it was sort of hygiene theater or, or just trying to say like look at how mm-hmm. look at this big strong government response like you just you just saw it with the planes with the flyover <laughs> like um makes people feel theater. safe but the mm-hmm. only theoretical way that that could possibly matter is if people are walking around seating the sidewalks with coughs and sneezes and you walk on it and get a little bit on your shoe and then walk into your house and then touch your floor. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a pretty roundabout way of managing anything. I mean, I could see spraying down any high touch surfaces, like walking into the subway and spraying that down every hour. Yeah. I mean, I've seen them like spraying the platform train platforms and, you know, still the bottom of your shoes. I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping everybody is doing their best to take off shoes every time they come into their home um, mm-hmm. and not touching the bottoms of them when they're taking them off mm-hmm. and also washing their hands right when they get in. So I wouldn't really worry about yeah, getting it from the sidewalk. So, no, I'm not um, I'm not worried that we should be doing more spraying down. I think there's a million things we should be doing before that. Got it. OK. Um. What are the effects from a psychological, neurological, and functional point of view of the sustained lack of hugs, handshakes, basic human contact on the human brain? So, okay. There are people who've studied touch deprivation, and Mm -hmm. it is more than just how does it affect your skin. So you press on the skin, it sends signals to your spinal cord that go up to your brain, and that changes your brain's output. You know, if you felt... A burning sensation on your skin or if you felt a tiger claw on your skin you would release all these fight or flight um, Mm -hmm. hormones if you feel something that is gentle and generally perceived as pleasurable someone like patting you on the back then you might feel relieved you might feel endorphins if you've been touched on the shoulder by a human hand it's simply different than if you leaned against the a wall and your shoulder was on it you know, um, that's too bad. I've been doing a lot of foam rolling and I figured I was probably fine. Yeah. But that's just part of it is knowing that it's a human. It, it, it creates this cascade of emotional signals that aren't recreated, even if it was like the exact same pressure and the exact same duration. And depending on how sustained that is, and if you have a sort of typical reaction to touch, you're going to be suddenly without those hormones that are being released you know Mm -hmm. and if that happens moment to moment and then you go weeks without it you're likely to have just more of that feeling of flatness right just there is no input do we know anything about the long-term effects of uh like sensory deprivation in general i don't i wouldn't expect it would change your relationship to touch but i think this is just one of the many like generally nice and stress relieving and humanizing inputs that we are missing, which, you know, in aggregate are not good for us. They're not good for that ethereal thing we call health. You know, you might sleep a little less well because you feel a little more stressed and you feel a little more alone and you have a little less dopamine. I can't tell you the exact neurologic pathways. I don't think anybody knows, but. 
Okay. <laughs> we, does it help more when you're like, well, dopamine levels decrease by 12%? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> and it takes three to six months. Like for every day that you spend in isolation, it takes three months for your brain to recover. It's like normal levels of dopamine. And we know that especially for people in this age group and this like climate that it has this effect. That's what I was hoping for. But it, hopefully that's a relief that it's not universally good or bad and, and you can recover from these things. Yeah, but a majority of people say that they like they are huggers. They say they like to hug, but they rarely do it. Most people don't do it as often as they would like because they're worried about the other person feeling that they might not have wanted to hug. Mm -hmm. I'm known as a very bad hugger. My hugging has been criticized by huggies. In what way? I've been told it's not genuine oh, and no. stiff. <laughs> oh. Do you not like <laughs> hugging? I don't really. Oh. No. But would you like a hug now or are you still Hell yeah. Yeah. I can take a hug. Yeah. Anyway, I've got my foam roller. Uh, <laughs> all right. This is our last question. It's from Tony. Um so Tony is noting that he has heard that there's a very low survival rate for patients put on ventilators. I've heard this too. And yet we've been talking about ventilators and, you know, there was this early concern that there wouldn't be enough ventilators for everyone with the expectation that that would actually, you know, be one of the primary treatments for people. So Tony says, we're all talking about needing more ventilators, but it sounds like the vast majority of patients that need them are dying. What... Do we understand why ventilators aren't working as we thought they might? Yeah, there's a lot about the disease that's surprising us. And it, we're seeing some early evidence that people who would normally need ventilators, like they have really low blood oxygen levels, are able to get by with masks or with just high oxygen through nasal cannulas, the little prongs in your nose. Mm -hmm. And... That has partly to do with the weird blood oxygen levels that we're seeing in this disease that aren't like what you normally would see. Normally, you'd we'd want to put someone on a ventilator because you'd be assuming they were in respiratory distress. And it also mm -hmm. has to do with how long this disease lasts. Um, so people are g being on ventilators for a very long time. And over time, that has negative consequences from damage to the lungs mm -hmm. from being on a ventilator that long. Mm. So it may be that ventilators are actually doing harm to people. That's a very, they've also saved a lot of lives. Um, right. A ventilator always has um, negative effects as well. It's not a perfect intervention. You have to be sedated. It is forcibly blowing air into your lungs, which over time that force can cause damage. You have to be sort of weaned off of it slowly you can't just go from getting tons of oxygen forced into your lungs to, to shutting it off so you're going to be out for a while and then there's a rehabilitative mm -hmm. process you have to go through and some people they've saved many lives in this crisis but it, in fact they seem to save so many lives that there was a bias to just kind of it looks like you're crashing like let's get you on the ventilator um, and now they're just thinking you know if there's any way to avoid it we will. I think that's the shift right now. Yeah. I mean, that seems 
uh, not to try to make it good news, but it seems like that is a potentially positive development that not as many people actually are needing ventilators as we thought. And it for many might be survivable without one. Yeah, I, I think that is good because it, it aligns with what was a short link in our supply chain. So we still need a ton and we will still run out of ventilators if we get hit really hard, if we like totally let up on social distancing in places. That, mm-hmm. So this is not to say it's not an issue, but when someone has to go on a ventilator, they're extremely critically ill. It's never done for people who are just kind of hanging out. Um, mm-hmm. So outcomes are never good. It's it's a last ditch effort to have something breathe for you. But um, there's some hope that some people can avoid them. And that is good news. What a lovely place to end. How rare <laughs> that we have actual good news to end on. Um Okay, the last thing I'll say is uh, I wanted to say thank you from Will uh, from San Francisco who called us with a, a bit of a correction, actually, to our the episode we did last week talking about what's up with the celebrities. He wanted us to make sure to note that John Krasinski, the guy from The Office, his prom was very good. So there you go. This show was produced today by Alvin Melleth with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. You can write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com if you have questions. We uh, will try to answer the ones we have answers to every now and then. And if you have been enjoying the show and you're in a position to support the journalism of The Atlantic, the best way to do that is with a subscription, which you can do at theatlantic.com slash support us. Um, thanks, Jim. Thank you for letting me ramble through these questions. Yeah, ramble, ramble you did. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.